I mean, there are all these tropes that go along with it that, uh, to my mind, may not be entirely reasonable. I mean, are you really having a, you know, a fight with your death? <laughs> it seems like you're not going to yeah. win that one. Welcome to your eulogy. My landlord stopped by today to talk about his deep vein thrombosis that almost killed him last year. His name is Tony Schmitz, but there's a whole lot more to him than just that. Uh, he started his own paper back in the day, and he was also an editor for the City Pages, a uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul um, alt-weekly. Um, I've just realized I've had like three different reporters on this podcast. Um, I guess I think reporters are important <laughs> or cool or something. Um, anyway, I spent the interview trying to get him to lower his defenses, but I think he is exactly what he is, and he just doesn't have a facade like most of us do. Um, he is a good person. Uh, he's a good interview, and um, it was it was uh, it was fun interviewing him. Uh, good interview, great guy, wonderful father. I'm assuming he's a good father just because of how lovingly he talks about his family in this interview. Anyway. Hope you enjoyed the interview. I've said interview way too many times in this intro. Whatever, we'll we'll get past that. Um, here is the theme song. Welcome to your eulogy, the podcast where we talk to someone about their life so we can talk about their death. Today, I have my landlord, uh, Tony. Would you like to use your full name? Um, that's fine. Okay. As in? Schmitz. Schmitz, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to be going into too many um, uh, compromising, uh, unless you have a very checkered past that we get into, which would be great. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably not that checkered. It's not interestingly <laughs> checkered. For this episode, I wrote a joke just for you. Good. Um, so, uh, good old Tony Schmidt, Schmitz. Yeah. Um, Tony Schmitz uh, dies, goes to heaven, goes up to registration, and uh, the heaven clerical worker, clerical, wait, is that if you're a priest? Uh, a cleric, yeah, cleric. you're a cleric. Wait, wait, yeah. so I didn't want that. If you're a clerk. Uh, then you're a clerk. Okay, well. <laughs> anyway, Tony goes up to heaven, and, and the uh, the person at registration is like, oh, well, we're, we're sorry. You have a very common name. The wrong person, so you get to go back yeah. to earth. And Tony's like, oh, great. You know, goes back to earth, um, tells everyone about it, and they all think it's amazing. He lives his life. Um, he gets, you know, uh, some pulmonary blood clots and whatnot, and is going to die sitting on his deathbed. And he's you know, terrified. And his wife is like, Tony, remember, you know, all those years ago, you died, you went to heaven. They told you, you know, like, you know, heaven exists. Yeah. What are you so afraid of? And he goes, well, yeah, but who knows if it's still there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's always that problem. <laughs> <laughs> heaven closed. It's been gentrified. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the landlord thing is just a, piece of coincidence that um, probably nobody gives a shit about 
but um, you have had done a whole bunch of different things in your life. Um, maybe did you start the city pages or were you just no, there at the beginning? No, no. I, I actually um, started a little newspaper called uh, Machete, which was kind of, uh, you know, I think later was the kind of thing that might have been described as a zine. Um but it at the time was this broadsheet, uh, you know, really big hunk of newspaper, uh, but four pages and delivered throughout southeast Minneapolis and or South Minneapolis, really, in the um, geez, late seventies. Um, yeah, late seventies. I, I had a little typesetting business that <laughs> kind of funded it, um, you know, back in the era when. You could still sell type because not everybody could do it on a well. There weren't <laughs> there yeah. weren't personal computers at the time, so you had to buy type from somebody. So, uh, you know, did that for a couple of years. And, um, and was this a what did you like uh, reporting on? Oh, you know, it was a sort of series of you know sometimes like just crazy stories. I mean, you know, it's stuff I guess that you know, back in the day might eventually have appeared in uh, City Pages. Um, you know, and some of it, I'm sure, was just, just struck people as kind of wonky in a way, um, where, you know, I got an interest for God knows what reason in um, pig farming in southern Minnesota, <laughs> <laughs> where um, uh, do the geologic structure of the place, you know, it had the capacity to just dump you know, millions of pounds of uh, pig manure into the aquifer. And so, uh, you know, people were ups upset about it for obvious reasons. And, I, well, among them, uh, the smell, which people said, uh, oh, you don't want to be around here when the pig winds are blowing. <laughs> <laughs> the guy you know, ran the pig farm advised me, uh, well, if you come down here, don't wear clothes you ever want to wear again because you will never get the smell out of them. Um, and Patty, you know, again, my wife, Patricia, uh, did, you know, I'm talking about stories I remember from yeah, however long that is by now, uh, I don't know, you know, 40 years or whatever, um, but uh, did a story, the headline of which was, you know, a bear dies in Como, 148 other animals aren't so lucky. You know, it was uh, <laughs> some polar bear that had been beaned by a kid with a cement block. But, you know, what it pointed out were just the awful conditions at Como yeah. Park at the time, you know, which was really kind of like a prison for animals. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, a chance for... Um, the young people we were at the time to spout off, which is always a great pleasure for the young. So <laughs> yeah, um, what what did you get out of it? Did you feel? Um, did you like the creation of it? Was it a personal just engagement with how you are? Where you like to make things? You like to see how things move, or do you connect more with feeling a social responsibility for you know airing the. Um, short-sightedness of like pig farming or poor zoological practices <laughs> well um you know some of it was the temper of the time which you you, you is forgotten quickly you know um you know at the time it was that post watergate era where people really thought uh um, journalism was something worth doing you know and that it was you know a little bit of a beacon into 
practices that sometimes were indefensible. And, um, you know, so that cadre of people who came out of, you know, the journalism schools at the time really, you know, saw some kind of social mission in it rather than just raw careerism. And I guess I was influenced by that um and then you know there was just the do-it-yourself aspect you know not working for not working for the man kind of yeah. uh, thing and uh um you know that spoke to me i mean my dad had been a car mechanic with uh you know solely himself in his shop and uh just working for himself and i think you know it just had an influence on me that i didn't he might have not loved every aspect of it, but he wasn't going working for the man every day. So that, yeah, I think that had any. Yeah, you said, so your dad was a mechanic. Right. Um, and earlier this year, you, you kind of talked to me about when he died. Was it two years ago? Yeah, it was about two years ago. And it was a, a good death, right? Well, Generally, yeah, as, as I mean, you go. know, the optimal death would be you'd be walking down the street singing a merry <laughs> tune and fall over dead and that'd be it. And there'd be no, you know, EMT guy pounding on your chest and no doctor, and no nurse. You'd just be dead. Um, but, uh, you know, within the confines of the reality of death in the United States, he slid by pretty easily where he had been living in his own home at the age of 92 and... Uh, but with increasing difficulty and uh, got sick, um, you know, with something that was, it, it was just a big infection, really, I think is what mm. it actually was. It was in the hospital for a day and a half and um, died. Uh, so, you know, again, given all the range of horrible things that can happen to you at the end of your life where, you know, you can spend months or years suffering and just barely alive. Um, he slid th- slid through fairly easily, I would yeah. say. I, I, I can't remember which philosopher said this. It may have been Montaigne quoting someone else, but they were talking about how the body has a, na- it naturally prepares itself for death. And the sad aspect of that is part of that natural preparation is your quality of life just getting so low that you no longer fear death as much. Yeah. Well, I think it's true. You know, if you wake wake up every day and think, I hurt here and I hurt there, and all primarily what I have to look forward to is another day of hurting, uh, you know, who, who wants to be around for that? And yet, at the same time, you know, if you look at the New York Times Sunday magazine, uh, you know, it's full of ads from place like Sloan Kettering to... Um, you know, say, well, you're sort of obliged to have this courageous struggle with cancer. I mean, there are all these tropes that go along with it that, uh, to my mind, may not be entirely reasonable. I mean, are you really having a, you know, a fight with your death? <laughs> it seems like you're not going to yeah. win that one. What is uh, Sloan Kettering? Oh, it's uh, Cancer uh, Treatment Center. Cancer treatment. Yeah, it, it, is, it is nice that in the popular culture, I'm seeing more um, interviews with people talking about the acceptance of death and um, rejecting the conventional idea that death can be defeated through pharmacology. Yeah, well, I, I think just as time goes on, there will be more and more and more ways to keep you alive in ways that aren't entirely agreeable to you and that 
I think there will just be much more discussion about, well, what is a life worth living and what is a life where you're just a pincushion for the medical industry? Yeah. So we're here chatting, sounding all wise and above the crushing reality of death and whatnot, which is a very easy position for me as a 33-year-old to get into. Um, But last year, when you had a death scare because of, um, well, I'll I'll let you say the details, but did you feel shaken? Was your stability, um, your kind of, you know, life philosophy that you know you thought you had like a at least a handle on things as you were progressing into your golden years <laughs> was it shaken at all well yeah i mean i think in the end although i didn't realize it at the time i guess you had um, blood clots it's, yeah i had a that. you know what is described as a deep vein thrombosis and a pulmonary embolism that was you know pretty serious it was a lot of junk in my lungs to the extent that um you know, they. I went to the emergency room. They, you know, threw me on a table, uh, inserted this pipeline from my groin up into my, you know, through my heart and into my lungs, and sprayed a bunch of anticoagulant junk in there, and then <laughs> put a filter at the base of my heart to kind of trap any other clots that might break loose. And I spent. 10 days hanging around the house, having a staycation in the hospital. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, you know, in the moment I was just going along with it and didn't really, I don't know, it's a funny thing to try to describe, but, you know, I was just kind of doing it moment by moment and didn't feel really distressed by the idea that, uh, geez, I could die, even though there was, a, for, you know, the level of, severity of all this stuff I was doing, a kind of 30 to 50% chance that you would die. Um, But, uh, you know, later I was talking about it with my wife and I I had just been saying, you know, it's kind of like a dream. I mean, that uh, Hmm. um, I felt okay, you know, a couple of weeks before I went into the hospital, I had this episode and I came out very quickly, felt fine again, you know, and I said, it's like something that kind of didn't really happen you know it's like a dream and she said eh I don't know that you're analyzing this correctly and that (laughs) um, she said you know that just other things she had heard me say um, made her think no it kind of changed your perspective a little bit on um, you know how much time you want to spend in your life in contention and arguing with people or even listening to people's arguments that, um, you know, I've just, (laughs) I mean, kind of a bizarre little peripheral effect is that it just made me stop looking at Facebook by and large because I thought so much of this is just about, you know, needless, pointless arguments with other people that just kind of pollutes your brain in a way. And I just don't, I'm trying to avoid that stuff if I can now. Um, I think, you know, it's sort of, it turns into a question more of, um, well, how do you want to spend your life? You know, how do you really want to live and what do you want the emotional texture of your mind to be? And do you want to be caught up in, you know, waving a fist and waggling a finger? And increasingly, I think, no, man, I don't want that. Yeah, waggling a finger certainly doesn't seem effective. Um, raising fist, you know, has its point, but 
I don't think anything has ever changed by <laughs> yeah, waggling yeah, of yeah, fingers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there anything in particularly in particular that you have found that you've changed besides not looking at Facebook as much? <laughs> well, I really have. You know, it's. I mean, I think the trouble is that. Um, you know, you have certain buckets in your brain, I think, and I think there's just a desire to fill them. And there's, you know, the, you know, the happiness bucket, but there's also the, you know, anger bucket and the outrage bucket and the why doesn't everybody else do these things that I think they should do bucket. And, um, um, you know, that there's just a tendency to want to keep those filled almost regardless what petty thing you need to fill them up with. And, um, you know, I've been trying to, uh, and, you know, God knows not successfully, but um, uh, to sort of uh, reduce the size of the anger outrage uh, bucket. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll see how that works out over time. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, in Buddhism, they have the idea of buckets, but there are things that you fill with good things. Yeah. And so you have like seven virtues, basically. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You can like, you know, fill up your buckets and and then, you know, um, reach enlightenment or whatever. But it, it's more, it takes a really long time. So this is part of the reincarnation. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't possibly do it in one lifetime. Which, yeah. <laughs> which I didn't know a lifetime wasn't long enough yeah. to get to heaven, which um, <laughs> I was asking um, your daughter, who is my friend, um, what I should ask you. Uh, and she said, ask you, what a good death would be and i think you gave me the perfect answer which is an instantaneous (laughs) (laughs) um but i i want to ask you what it's like to have um you have two kids um two daughters that's correct right i'm not forgetting someone and they are both really badass and really like wonderful (laughs) yeah i agree completely Yeah. yeah what what is what's that like um is it at all intimidating for your um daughters to reach adulthood and not only be like good people but good enough to like you know maybe like tell you what to do <laughs> and be like well hold, hold up old man yeah 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 no i mean as uh i said at laney's wedding you know one of the the greatest pleasure of life in my experience is your family you know that all of the other things fall away you know all the places you ever worked where you thought oh this is so important and now you realize I'd go back there and nobody would even know what my name is man I mean they wouldn't know whereas the you know thing that extends you know through time into your great satisfaction and consolation is uh, your family and um, it's just uh, you know I have friends who have um, you know kids who have been more problematic for them <laughs> um, and I just feel like man it, we just landed the jackpot on this one that um, you know I love them and they're wonderful people I'm proud of what they're doing I'm happy they come over for you know Sunday dinner every Sunday and I'm happy to see you know I'm overjoyed to see them they have crazy stories about you know what they're doing they're animated they're interesting and um man you just you couldn't ask for more and it's it is just one of the you know probably the well the saying is um children are the consolation for everything except for having children which um <laughs> is <laughs> and i wouldn't even agree with the second part because um 
you know, we just had an exceptionally easy ride with them as children. And, you know, it's been a pleasure ever since. Yeah. What would, and I want to put you on the spot, because I, I think I can put you in a corner on this one. Um, what would you tell people that um, don't have kids and or like couples that aren't planning on having kids? Well, um, please say doomed to like meaninglessness. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I just think you have to find meaning in other places, you know, that I mean, certainly people build all sorts of communities via, you know, volunteer work they do or church work or, you know, they're involved in politics or um you know, environmental stuff or, you know, whatever. I mean, there are all sorts of paths to meaning. And I wouldn't say, oh, wow, if you don't take the path I took, that your life is a, you know, empty sham of existence. But, um, you know, just for me anyway, um, it's just been the, you know, really the greatest pleasure of life, you know, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, when I've done, I think this is the 10th interview I've done, and in just about every episode, we talk about family. Um, and so I, I've been reflecting on family a lot. And it's, I just think family is so, I think people revere it so much because I think I made some joke about it. It's just like family is just like people that you're around so long you don't have the energy to like impress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I just think that exposure makes you see what people are and i think we mistakenly um overly praise family when what's actually really happening is is we're getting a um an education on humanity once you can observe someone as all of their social graces fall away as you know the way that they want to be seen um falls away when you just in that presence, you just get to see what a, a person is, and I think, I think that's kind of where the power and the magic of you know such reverence for um, family kind of comes from. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, it's like taking a really, really, really long vacation with somebody <laughs> <laughs> that um, your best efforts to hold it together in a whole bunch of different circumstances uh, will work for a while, but eventually the um, the mask slips and you understand what you're dealing with. And, uh, you know, I think it's true with your family. I mean, you have a notion of, well, I think I know who these people are. I mean, not, you know, you never know, you know, you never know entirely who anybody is, including yourself, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, but you have more of a notion. with. So Lainey, your daughter also, she said that, um, Patricia, um, Said, she said that she has some like cool ideas about the afterlife. What is Lainey referring to? Uh, I don't know, uh, to tell you the truth. I mean, uh, Patricia has this idea that uh, she doesn't want to live past 85. Um, that, you know, she's, she, her, if you ask her, she'll say uh, 85 and out. Um, <laughs> but um, we'll see. Uh, well, we'll see if she hits 85, and then she, we'll see what she does when she turns 85. <laughs> but um, It's a weird birthday cake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Adios. just all black, you know. <laughs> um, you know, it's a funny thing to say because we spend almost all day together, together every day. I mean, we work together, we you know, live together. And um, 
I honestly don't really know what she thinks about the afterlife. Um, you know, she has attitudes about not wanting to turn into, she'd prefer to be compostable waste um, and not be, you know, cremated or embalmed or enshrined in, you know, concrete and steel. But uh, as far as what she makes of the step beyond, uh, I've got to say, I'll, I'll have to go home and ask her. Yeah. And what maybe, did Lainey say? She didn't say, say anything. <laughs> um, maybe she was just referring to your mom's hard out, um, her 85 and out. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I kind of got to earlier, but I want to push you on a little bit more. Um, you are, at least conversationally, a um, like kind of a sure-footed um, person. Um, economically, you're also pretty smart, responsible, um, philosophically and socially i think you're pretty um smart um in terms of like your opinion on stuff like like i think in in certain ways you i wouldn't call you like a moderate but i think you do like appreciate like how long things take for like big changes for like you know like healthcare like okay i think single payer is the way to go but we got to be smart about like getting there and it's not going to be a utopia you know next election um and so when you have a death scare like you did um, with your deep vein thrombosis, um, I was secretly kind of hoping that all of that, um, all of that ego, all that um, uh, philosophical navigation of life would like crumble and you'd be like a baby looking at the void. Do you ever have moments like that where you're like, oh, I've just gotten really good at living maybe I'm not actually as prepared as I am. Yeah, well, it would be better for a novel. I mean, if you, if, if we were writing a novel and, uh, you know, my hair started on fire the minute I left the hospital, it would make for a better novel anyway. But, um, you know, it really wasn't like that. Um, I it was grateful for the medical treatment I got because I think I would have died without it. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know exactly what to tell you on this. Um, that uh, uh, you know, obviously, we're all going to die sometime. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, I can't say that I've made any great greater peace with that than anybody has. But uh, um, it's hard to argue with the inevitability of it. And so, like so many inevitable things, you sort of have to try to find a way to accept it. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and and you, um, I shouldn't be like trying to um, force a more sensational um, revelation because kind of like when we were talking about journalism earlier, um, you know, the the truth doesn't have to be entertaining. <laughs> yeah, well, I've you know also just had that family experience of watching, you know, a few people in my family die in really horrible ways mm-hmm. where. You know, my mother had a degenerative neurological disease that took her seven years to work through from diagnosis to death, and she died at 65, kind of crumpled up in a bed, barely able to move, hardly able to talk, you know, barely able to swallow. And, uh, you know, you look at that and think, well, there are circumstances under which being alive is not so great. And my grandmother was kind of sliced to pieces in a snake pit nursing home of the era where you think 
it's just horrible. I mean, you would rather be dead. And yeah, just um, like over medicating. Well, it was, you know, it's hard to even imagine these places anymore. I mean, this was probably in the, I don't know, late 70s, I would guess. And, you know, it doesn't seem that distant, and yet the standards for nursing care have changed so radically. Um, but she was, you know, poor treatment led to infection, which led to amputation, which led to more infection. And it was probably by the standards of today inexcusable but then just kind of routine in a way and uh, you know horrible place that smelled of urine and was Mm. awful and you think well you know it's just not you know again just thinking oh I must live forever is not necessarily the card you want to play I don't think but you know I, I think it's probably true that a certain number of the things we do today will look 40 years from now, barbaric. And um, we'll think, oh my God, I can't imagine that people did that. And, you know, and yet in the present, you accept them as what, you know, what is. And uh, so. Yeah, I I was going to, I I was trying to get at what would shake you to the core to make you lose your perspective. But I think through these stories, we're actually just finding what shook you to the core that granted you this um, perspective where you're not as um, unmoored as some other people may be if they got, you know, um, had to go through something like you did last year. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. For better or worse, I'm not a real jumpy person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're going to take a break now and. Uh, you had actually maybe we should have talked about this you had actually you've updated your will oh yeah 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 um did you do any writing about the end of your life any eulogy-esque type stuff no no i mean i just regarded it as a legal document and um i'm perfectly happy to leave it all to the kids and let them decide what to do let (laughs) them get the dumpster I did a, after we broke, um, Tony wrote his will, um, or an addendum to his will. I, I actually am not sure what addendum really means. I thought it meant like summary. Um, and I went downstairs while he wrote it and then he came down and he was like, okay, Matt, I gotta go. I gotta go work on the paper. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. And I didn't. Uh, have the guts to be like, oh, wait, I'm sorry. I want you to go back up and read it. Um, So I'm going to perform his um, instead. Addendum, last will and testament. Take a close look at the material objects we have accumulated 
They are all not necessary. Two. On the other hand, there is pleasure to be derived from some of them. Choose which is which. Three. A will is about the material, the material world, but is not descriptive of the real reality of life. Four, and that cannot be conveyed in a document. Document. And try to remember the hours and the days we were together, and look to what they say when taken as whole. Five, please, please remember what I've said so often before that my family was the greatest joy of my of my life. And the primary source of meaning. Most everything else falls away with time. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Most everything else falls away with time. Thank you to Tony Schmitz for uh, being on the interview today. Um, Sorry, I forgot to have you read your own eulogy, but I think this um, this adaptation was kind of fun. Um, your eulogy is produced and recorded and edited by me, Matthew Schneeman. Um, I haven't made an email for it yet. Yes, I have. It is your eulogy mail at gmail.com. Um, yes, so thank you for listening. Um, yeah, that's it. Thanks. Bye-bye.